Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You know, if you read what Vitalik is talking about, of like what what are the things that he wants us to go back to? It's things like you know uh, thinking about governance again from first principles, or thinking about uh, quadratic funding or public goods funding. This kind of stuff is what he generally points to, or you know, enshrining privacy even further. As opposed, and he's in a way he's sort of dismissing to some degree the bank the unbanked, you know, Tron, super low fees, all that kind of stuff that Tron is actually doing, despite the fact that, yes, Justin Sun is not the paragon of decentralization, but he's the practical guy who's getting stable coins in the hands of people in emerging markets. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two clones. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, I named trading firms who are very involved. Um, I like that ETH is the ultimate problem. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Hello. Next, we've got Tarun, the Giga Brain and Grand Poobah at Gauntlet. Yo. And joining us today, we have Laura, the CEO of the show. I guess I'll say GM. And I'm Hasib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is an investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice, please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. So it is the start of the new year. Laura, it's been a while since we've had you on the show. It's great to have you back. How's, uh, how's your end of year festivities been? Good. I finally had some time off. I made it up to Vermont and had a really fun time. Vermont? Honestly, actually, you guys, oh my God. I, we, so we ended up going to this alpaca farm. Okay, the alpaca farmer has a crypto podcast. And he started in 2016, <laughs> Wait, which is the same year that I started Unchained. So, Wait, what's his podcast about? Um, he told me that he does it kind of in an edutainment style where he does like songs and jokes. And I don't remember. Like, he, whoa, songs? Yeah. Or, or I don't remember. Oh, man. We, are, we, we need to branch out. Clearly, we're, uh, we got to get multimedia. This isn't Song of the Day Man, is it? No, 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 no. He's not an alpaca farmer. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Jonathan, like, was someone who I could have seen, like, over the last five years, went from living in New York to alpaca farmer. Wouldn't be totally Maybe crazy. Maybe we should do a crossover episode with this alpaca <laughs> farmer. Yeah. Well, I, so I know Jonathan. So, you know, that, you know, I, I feel like I would have known that. But this guy, um, yeah, he, like, moved from Boston up to Vermont a few years ago and, like started this alpaca farm but he knows a ton about crypto i have a feeling he's an anon that like is very active on all the different social media because he was saying oh like i posted something on reddit earlier that day and i think he was saying basically that he could tell it was going viral i don't know if that's exactly what he was saying but then then i was like oh i wonder if i could figure out who who he is but the point is yes so there are crypto people everywhere even on alpaca farms wow okay um I guess that's how you know you've gone mainstream is when you have uh, people from all walks of life. 
the other thing that's crazy is um, I just realized none of us have wished each other Happy New Year. So Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Slightly late, but yes, Happy New Year to you guys. Um, well, so going along with the New Year, we did have one bet that was riding uh, that was going to be adjudicated on the end of the year. And so that bet, for those of you who remember, who are longtime Chopping Block listeners, is we had a bet riding on what was going to be the end of year circulating supply of PayPal's USD stablecoin. And so we have the final number. So just to remind everyone, uh, each of us had taken a bet on what was going to be the circulating supply at the end of the year. So uh, Robert bet that it was going to be at 70 million. Tarun bet it would be at 100 million. Tom bet 250 million. And I bet 499 million. And I think we were doing prices right rules. And so the ending supply of PiUSD was 264 million. And so Tom was right within 14 million of the final number. Amazing accuracy. Very well done. Yes, clearly. Good Thank job, you. Tom. Thank you. I think they might have been juking the numbers a little bit in order to get Tom to win. But um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, go, we'll give it to you. Thank uh, you. And so I think you win a pack of Red Bull. I think. So PayPal actually reached out. They were very generously sponsored our bet. Uh, and so they are, I think if you give them your address, they will ship you a pack of Red Bull. Congratulations. Do you even drink Red Thank Bull? You. Oh, no, you do, I, right? I do. I do drink Red Bull. Not as I saw Tarun who's actually drinking a Red Bull right now. So uh, not as regularly as him. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's really this just, one. Uh, this one is also a, a mega size. It's, it's 16 ounces. Oh, wow. Is that a I mean, I that like looks, yeah. Yeah, that looks like a normal Red Bull to me. Yeah. I, I, I also well, when feel you put like it closer in, to the camera, it does look bigger. I will grant that. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, do you, how, well, how well do you sleep? Uh, you know, four to six hours a night, something like that. Just four fine. to six? That's Dude, that's not, not good. Yeah. Not <laughs> you, you need to sleep. I don't know. Dude, I just like always wake more than four up. To six. I, I, I just wake up. I just wake up and can't go back to sleep. So it's, yeah. yeah. If I were you, I would maybe try to drink Red Bull earlier in the day and then like stop drinking it by, you know, like noon. And then, and then, <laughs> then your sleep will probably, probably improve. There's too many things to do in a day though, to like sleep that much. So. <laughs> Yeah, but there's less to do at night. That's why we kind of orient, you know, society. There's definitely around not that. less to do at night. There's yeah. definitely <laughs> less. That, that, that's that's the reason you live out. in New York. I'm a little worried you're going to lose your giga brain status. Let me put it that way. By not sleep, sleeping, you know, there, losing there, sleep there are makes a you lot stupid. of studies. There are a lot of studies about long-term sleep deprivation that do result in losing brain mass. So it is it is very much a thing. Like if you look up, especially people who are ex-military. I think it's, that's where a lot of these studies are done because people in the military very often they very regularly get like four to five hours of sleep, uh, sleep a night. And if they continue that kind of sleep cycle, like you can do that for a few years uh, without, any, without any issues, especially when you're young. But if you keep doing that into your middle age and old age, it ends up affecting your, um, your cognitive performance later in life. So yeah, it is a thing. There are studies also that show like when you are sleep deprived, then um, your brain is functioning at the level of like a drunk person. I'm, I'm excited for us to have Brian Johnson as a guest based yeah. on this last two minutes of conversation. <laughs> I don't even know who that is. You don't know who Brian uh, Johnson is? The longevity yeah. guy. Oh. Venmo co-founder. Oh, okay. No, I, I uh, know. Braintree. 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 Braintree, uh, sorry, sorry, Braintree, my bad. Well, I, both some yeah. company bought by PayPal well, related yeah, to our really company <laughs> owned by PayPal. So we're bringing <laughs> <Yeah>. full circle. <laughs> 
I, I wow. just remember, okay. you know, I just was like, yeah, somehow, somehow PayPal's acquisition is involved. But if you ever see pictures on the internet of like this normal tech bro guy, and then the other side is like this guy who looks like a vampire in some ways, uh, that's probably Brian Johnson. An ashy, very fit vampire with very little clothing on. <laughs> or pictures of him and his son holding each other's blood or whatever. There's, there's also that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Laura, I, I, okay. Laura, you do need to read up on this, but probably not appropriate for the show. Okay. Um, all right, cool. So let's let's move on to news. So it's been a relatively chill week. Well, I, mean, I don't know. It depends on how you count as chill. So there, there was a massive hack that uh, we're just going to touch on very briefly. So a thing called the Orbit Bridge, which is a bridge between Ethereum and Clayton, which is the chain that was launched by Kakao, which is a you know South Korean company. So this hack, it was on the order of, I think, 80 million. Uh, and the hack was discovered as, I, I believe, a bunch of the multisig signers were taken over. And people believe there's some speculation that I read from, uh, from, from uh, uh, Taylor Monaghan that this may be related to the uh, North Korea uh, and or the Lazarus group. It seems to share some signatures with them. I don't know, I don't know how much there is to really talk about here, but uh, another big hack that uh, took place recently that a lot of people are freaking out about. Laura, you mentioned that this was the only part of the news that you uh, read this morning. Uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, Orbit Bridge hack? You have the floor. Well, you know, you guys probably already know that I have an interest in North Korea. And, um, you know, as somebody who's covered the regulatory issue in crypto for a while, I will definitely say when this happens... The U.S. government is watching and um, it's not a good look. It's not even not only <laughs> it's it's not only that it's a bad look for crypto, but like it's going to cause problems for you all. And what's surprising is Clayton is well, what like do you, a, mean you all are you're like also crypto people. in this industry, Laura. You're a crypto, well, person. <laughs> crypto people like you're you guys, a crypto we've person. Had, we've had this discussion before. I'm a journalist covering crypto, which is different. Oh, come from on. You were just hanging out with a crypto <laughs> alpaca farmer. I don't even do that. <laughs> um, right. But I'm not building crypto things, right? And so yeah, I'm just sure. saying. Just like the biggest podcast and a media company. <laughs> and all, all right. Anyway. All right, all right. Fine. But, but anyway, point, point, is, point is that, um, you know, after what happened with Tornado Cash, like if this keeps happening, it's going to cause more backlash. And the other thing, frankly, that was surprising is like, you know, Clayton is a South Korean something or other. And so you would think that they would be especially kind of vigilant about these things. And yeah, it didn't happen. So, yeah, I mean, we don't have enough details about how exactly the attack took place, but it is kind of, I mean, you know, who has the biggest interest in stopping flows of funds to North Korea? You might think, well, the U.S. government, but it's like even more so the South Korean government. Oh, for sure. So I'm kind of like, is this really... You know, what what does this have to do with the U.S.? Like, I, I guarantee you, this bridge was overwhelmingly used by Koreans because Clayton. I mean, nobody in the West ever talks about Clayton. Right, it's right, really right. But thing. I mean, the U.S. government just for like national security because you know North Korea now they're developing like a nuclear whatever they're doing, and so the U.S. government they don't they don't want right to threaten South Korea. You know, so I, yeah. my my point is like well, yes, obviously the U.S. cares because they care about everything in the world, but this is yeah. really Korea's problem. Yes, but. Think about it. Nuclear issues are actually a global problem. Yeah, basically, the U.S. and South Korea are allied. So I think that's the deal. But I don't know if you guys knew this. I literally just found this out recently. Seoul is extremely close to North Korea. 
Um, I, I, did you guys listen you, to this? I was there. Um, I was Seoul, there the in, currency or Seoul the city? No, no, Seoul, Seoul the, city. the city. I was there in uh, oh, the in summer, and I uh, I remember that you can take the subway to the DMZ. So like we went to the DMZ, and it was like it's like astonishingly close. It's closer than San Francisco is to San Jose. You have to. You guys should listen to this Tim Ferriss podcast that he did with some um, Korean American guy who like is very familiar like i think he goes back to korea very regularly it's very educational and like super super interesting um but yeah like i didn't even know that i'm i'm korean american so anyway point is that yeah i i think there could be backlash against the industry from the government how do we actually go by like off-ramping this so right it's always like okay north korea at these funds you know even if they send it through a mixer or tornado or something like that like who is then receiving those funds on the other end for I don't know, whatever they need to purchase. Like that, that part well, of they, it. They did immediately sell the tether. Uh, I think they sold it for ETH. And then they, they they basically sold out of things really quickly before, you know, there was a lot of coverage of the hack. Um, it's obviously moved to uncensorable assets. But yeah, I mean, it, I, I think when we talked to Cryptogle, he was sort of uh, gesturing at this that if you are an individual, it's really, really hard to off ramp this stuff. If you're in North Korea, I'm sure that they have a lot of channels that they've pre-established to sell off dirty money. You know, whether it's through Russian exchanges or, uh, you know, exchanges that just have much, much weaker, much weaker compliance programs. And I'm sure they're getting big discounts for these things. So sure. they're probably getting 50 cents on the dollar or something. Sure. It's just, uh, you know, do- doing it in size and also doing it in a way that I mean, it's still traceable at the end of the day, right? It's not like, oh, you have some cash and after a certain period of time, it's hard to know where the cash came from. It's like, no, you can always look on chain and see where this ETH came from. And so it's just like, it, it seems uh, not very difficult or at least not very valuable actually, you know, have this stuff regardless. Yeah, right. but yeah. I mean, they, they don't really have any other way of getting money. So that's basically why they're doing this. Yeah, anyway. All right, so that's the Orbit Bridge hack. Um, let's move on to stuff that Laura hasn't read yet. Uh, so the... Uh, the one one big um, story this week has been Vitalik has raised his voice and uh, has written a couple things that have gotten the internet wrapped up in some back and forth. So he wrote a piece talking about uh, calling for a return to the cypherpunk roots of crypto. For, for those of you who are not aware, the term cypherpunk refers to an early movement back in the late 2000s, uh, which describes... Basically, people who were much more much more radical and much more um, political in their views that uh, there should be strong strong safeguards of privacy and kind of almost like a countercultural effort using cryptography to uh, fight back against government intrusions on civil society. And this was this is the roots of a lot of where Bitcoin and Ethereum and the early cryptocurrency movement came from. Uh, cypherpunk nowadays is kind of an OG thing. Most people who come to crypto did not come to it for cypherpunk reasons. And Vitalik calls for a return to the good old days. Um, and so he, he states that he disliked the shift toward financial interests and centralization, uh, the rise of these degen gamblers kind of being the tail that wags the dog in crypto, uh, and a hope that developments like rollups, privacy solutions, zero-knowledge proofs will reclaim crypto's original ethos of pushing for an open and free society, decentralization, censorship resistance, community collaboration, less of the zero-sum competition of tokens as it seems to play out today in most of these venues, uh, but instead being a, you know, a, a non-zero-sum vision for how crypt- the crypto industry can work together to build a better society. 
So this uh, seemed to galvanize a lot of people and uh, the people, the dog coin people mostly ignore this. What are your guys' views on Vitalik kind of calling? Is, is this Vitalik getting old and uh, kind of starting to, to, to get all back in the day on people? What's your feelings on, uh, on this piece? Tom, what's your take? I don't think he's uh, reminiscing necessarily. I do have to imagine there's a very strange feeling of having helped create this thing that is now like, you know, probably a very perverted version of, of what you actually want, where it's like people making Harry Potter, Obama, Shiba Punk, Inu, and like trying to get on centralized exchanges and completely ignoring, you know, the whole self-custody component. And so, I, you know, I, I, I empathize with him though. Like, hey, this is probably not the vision he had in mind when he was building Ethereum initially. I think at the same time though, like, you know, even from the early days of like, you know, Ethereum, a lot of the stuff was technically built and you can have, you know, um, uh, yeah, he calls that like status, for example, people using um, status as a form of, you know, censorship resistant um, you know, messaging or, or identity layer. It's just not very good. It's not very user friendly. And that's why people sort of gravitate towards these things. And so it feels a little bit old man yells at cloud, maybe where he's upset that things aren't sort of going, I think, in the, in the vision that he had initially. But there's a reason for that. It's not uh, sort of an arbitrary choice. It's like, yeah, this is just a genuinely kind of better product that's, that sort of solves problems that people actually have. And so um, I think maybe that's kind of the question, just like, how do you actually make this stuff competitive in, in the market if, if that's the, the vision that you want? Yeah, I, I maybe will take the the other side of this. So I think one interesting thing I had observe, have observed, and this is just you know my subset of things I've seen, is that you know I do kind of agree with this idea that like Ethereum's narrative dissemination has sort of left Twitter to some extent. Like some of it really is like there's certainly the people who are like talking about price and whatever on Twitter. Um, but I think like the Ethereum intelligentsia sort of arguably doesn't exist as much on Twitter anymore. You don't really see as much. You see a lot of like engineering stuff. You actually don't see much research. Like the research content is on ETH research, which is like an online forum or on Farcaster or other places. It, it really has actually moved quite a bit away from from Twitter. And I think there's there was a bit of sentiment that like because of that um there's this vacuum that like other chains were sort of filling and there's this argument that hey this post was a response to that and so so that that's sort of the undertone that i had seen a lot of people uh make kind of make claims about now i actually think the post was very good at calling out a lot of kind of shitty things within ethereum you know i think blast Mm -hmm. obviously got blasted pretty directly and i think um, there are a couple things that Vitalik took very direct shots at, not in name, but by obvious smacks in the face. It, there's a sense in which there was a sort of like retrospective angle to this. It was almost like reading like a postmortem. And the most funny thing was that every single person who, you know, if you go read the quote tweets of Vitalik's tweet, was like someone interpreting it differently. So it's almost like a religious text in that way, right? There's like, People from Solana land saying, look, Vitalik values low fees, like Ethereum isn't meeting its goals and Solana is the real Ethereum. There were people who were in all L1s talking about how like, oh, like we care about these end users who aren't in the casino, which is sort of not true if you look at their centralized exchange behavior, but whatever. 
and then there's finally this there was there was kind of like the ethereum intelligentsia who's like hey our roll up and roadmap makes sense but also let's say fuck blast one more time if we get a chance to and so there's kind of this very interesting thing where everyone took this script and gave you their own interpretation and you sort of got like almost like this like religious like response to it in the sense of like prophet says something everyone interprets it differently uh so i thought that was a very interesting aspect of this yeah that was 100 percent where i was going which is that vitalik is basically the pope and yeah. it felt like okay i can tell that like the the party is about to be back on and it's like right around um just like a big holiday it's it's, it's on the pope to like speak up and say hey guys let's remember the moral center and let's not get too crazy and let's not, you know, like just, I don't know, throw all the old traditions out the window. And um, it, 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 feel, it feels to me like exactly what you said, which is that, okay, everybody kind of agrees with the message. Everybody feels like, yes, you're right. We have lost our way. We should be better people. We should, you know, respect the virtues of chastity and uh, patience and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but everyone has, everyone basically finds a way to justify exactly what they were doing before the Pope spoke up. You know, and so that's that's really my feeling about this. You know, I, I always love the analogy between crypto and religions, and this feels particularly apt uh, in the way that nobody really heard this message and was like, oh, you know what? I've really been misguided in my ways and I should, you know, repent for I've committed sins against the ethos of Ethereum. Everyone is like, oh, yeah, Vitalik is talking about me and how awesome I am. <laughs> Yeah, which 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 was just wild, right? Because it was like people who are completely not <laughs> what he might have been calling out also did. <laughs> That's I mean, the nature of religion, though. Even like you know, even the uh, the thieves and the brigands, you know, they uh, they they say their little prayer at night, and uh, you know, you know, please let me have a good take this evening. I think the thing. So I read at least part of it and then skimmed the rest. Um, the thing that I thought about was See, that's how you know it's real religion. <laughs> you like, yeah. look, I, I, I looked, I skimmed it. I kind of, I got the idea. You know, you I don't guys, he published thing. it on December twenty eighth. Like I just told you, I took a trip, and then I had like an all day no, meeting no, no, today. No. I'm so just anyway, you shit. I'm just giving you shit. Um, but the point is, so you know, in the beginning where he's like talking about, um, you know, this period when he was a Bitcoiner, um, you know, it just reminded me. Um, the way that he started Ethereum was like he, yeah, was a Bitcoiner, was noticing how people were changing things. And he thought, oh, this this isn't the way you should kind of progress things. And that's how he came up with the idea of like building it around a programming language and making it so people, developers can kind of dream up whatever decentralized app they want. But, you know, at different times, he's kind of like basically, um, yeah, called out when the community is getting a little bit too greedy, like that time when he said oh um if this space is just about jokes around sharding and you know whatever then i will leave like do you remember this it was like late 2017 i think so i, I feel like early 2018 because i remember that was when like the samson mao type people were at their peak and i remember that was like the one of the main sources of those jokes if i remember correctly okay yeah yeah so i mean i think like even, um, yeah, just now he's probably set for life financially, but he's so humble and he's, um, yeah, just not the kind of person who is going to be like flashing his wealth or whatever. And as we all very well know, the other co-founders of Ethereum made off much better financially than he did. 
And he doesn't seem to like have any ill will about it, even while like other people in the community are upset that like he didn't, you know, make as much financially. So it's just interesting. Um, but the other two parts I want to call out are, first of all, he gives kudos to Gavin. Um, and I know, you know, from the research I did, I did for my book, like, I, you know, I don't think their relationship has been the like the best. Um, so I thought, you know, that was cool that he did that. And, um, you know, looking back, I think people could probably definitely say that, like, Gavin never got as much technical credit as he should have. Like, I think there's a lot of kind of personality issues maybe that came into play there. But, um, you know, he really kind of like took Vitalik's ideas and put them in into practice in a concrete way, like with the yellow paper and just, you know, he, he really was kind of one of the main architects of all this. Of, of Ethereum meaning. Um, but then the other thing that I have to call out is um, he uh, threw shade at Justin Tron, uh, Justin Sun. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but he, there's a photo of him in the blog post where he's standing in front of his ad and it says the world's largest decentralized ecosystem. And there's a huge headshot of Justin Sun looking like the innocent angel boy of Vitalik standing in front of it. And his caption is, background, the humble Tron founder and decentralization pioneer, Justin Sun, bravely leading forth the coolest and most decentralized crypto ecosystem in the global world. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was a little bit of sarcasm. But anyway, point is that I don't I'm not surprised by what he's saying here, because to me, it like goes back to why he was even interested in all of this in the first place. One one thing I think that uh, is related to that last part is that he does cover the the fact that Tron is has a lot of stable coins and i think this might have been the first time i have seen that in a vitalik communique of all any form that like that was you know mentioned so i i, I do think there's also the sense in which people are who 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 look at ethereum are worried that the main use cases like stable coins may not live in the most decentralized places and i think this is there was also a little bit of that uh, undertone and everything and i think the justin yeah. something was sort of like the pinnacle of like that part of the essay it was like <laughs> oh just last bit just where he lists the um values the number one one that he put is open global participation and he put that above decentralization so let me get a, a read from the room um how how do each of you guys feel about the cypherpunk ethos right there's there's kind of the cypherpunk aesthetic, which I think everybody in crypto likes and everybody in crypto appeals to. But then there's cypherpunk as a set of philosophical principles that, uh, you know, clearly that's what Vitalik comes from. That's like the very very old school approach to crypto. Um, how do you guys how do you guys actually feel about it? Right? There's 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 kind of the mood affinity of like yeah it's good because it's smart and it's cool and that's what all the cool kids like. But then there's the do you actually agree with it and endorse it? Or are you more, you know, financial, bank the unbanked, reinvent Wall Street, which are, which are, I think, two very different camps that aren't often opposed to each other in quite so many terms. But, you know, if you read what Vitalik is talking about, of like, what, what are the things that he wants us to go back to? It's things like, you know, uh, thinking about governance again from first principles or thinking about uh, quadratic funding or public goods funding. This kind of stuff is what he generally points to or, you know, enshrining privacy even further. As opposed, and he's, in a way, he's sort of dismissing to some degree the 
bank the unbanked, you know, Tron, super low fees, all that kind of stuff that Tron is actually doing, despite the fact that, yes, Justin Sun is not the paragon of decentralization, but he's the practical guy who's getting stable coins in the hands of people in emerging markets. Uh, Tarun, what's, what's, your, what's your feeling about the cypherpunk philosophy? So I still personally think it's like the most important thing that like if that disappeared, you have this like kind of slippery slope type of thing. Now, obviously, slippery slopes uh, are not a good debate argument. So I'm not trying to <laughs> say that I'm just trying to give some 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 view that like if you if you do start admitting each of these little tiny changes, the compounded version of them is much worse than any individual kind of like oh, we're going to be a little relaxed here. And I think, especially in a world filled with like increasingly cutting cor- cut corners, you know, like I think the AI world is a, a great example of a place where corners are cut, you know, in spherical ellipsoidal lines. I think crypto's unique differentiator is not going to be strictly like we're a faster TPS chain type of thing. On the other hand, I do still think that there is a sense in which you have to account. You can't just make validators your number one user profile you optimize for. And like in some sense, Ethereum has gone very far down the line of we don't care about the end user at all. We actually only care about the fact that the end user can be a validator. And those are two very different views. And I think that there's that sort of like a, a, a thing that's maybe beyond this a slightly more abstracted version of this bank the unbanked versus cypherpunk view of the world is who is the end user you actually care about do you care about the end user making transactions do you care about the validators do you care about the infrastructure providers of other forms like oracles and stuff do you care you know dot 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 and like your preference over who's the most important who's the second most important who's the third most important does impact those technical decisions you make. And I think that's the part where I think, you know, cypherpunk doesn't necessarily mean one preference ordering. That would be my my take on this. That's a, that's a very good point. Because I, I, I remember back in the day, Ethereum used to talk a lot about uh, the Ethereum stakeholders. Uh, and the term stakeholders was meant to encompass more than just token holders, right? So there's people who actually own ETH, but that that is not necessarily representative of all the people who use Ethereum. And there was there was a lot of talk about miners also being part of the stakeholders, right? And one assumed when you read the rhetoric of Ethereum back in those days that they were really trying to balance all the different kinds of people who are who are part of the Ethereum party. Uh, but then when you see what actually happens in Ethereum politics, you realize it's not really true, right? Like miners are kind of at the bottom of the totem pole. Like miners more like Ethereum more or less does not give a fuck about the miners. Um, now they care a lot about validators now, but in in the proof of work days they really did not care very much about miners. And miners had very little political input into the Ethereum roadmap. And you realize again, as as you were mentioning Tarun, that they care a lot about validators at the expense of you know companies in the space. Companies in the space don't get a lot of voice. The uh, you know end users in terms of ease of use or transaction fees or whatever they don't get a lot of voice. The, the, the primary voice comes from this, this they're sort of like, you know, a, a little bit of all people are equal, but some people more equal than others. If you run a validator, you are the most equal of all the people in Ethereum. And uh, th- there is something that's very pure about that, 
in the sense that sorry, sorry, there is if no you're a change. solo stake if you're a solo staking a solo value. staker yes to be clear not a commercial a, validator yes, but like sorry, a not home staker yes exactly a home staker um th- there is something that's very pure about that in that it is one of the few chains that is truly unobjectionable in its commitment to a philosophical ideal and that helps it in many ways which is that look gary gensler would never dare to come after ethereum given the, the purity that lies at, at the heart of it that everybody can see very clearly and the, and the same is true of bitcoin right bitcoin also has this kind of inimical attitude towards end users um that uh they, look we're here to enshrine the decentralization there is a true cypherpunk ideology here and that helps you in a way um but it is very different than uh, almost any other chain and it is also a little bit different than the rhetoric right the rhetoric they would never come out and say that ethereum would never openly say yes the thing that matters most is home stakers but when you see the 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 political reality of it it certainly seems that way um Tom, what's your take on the cypherpunk versus financial bank, the unbanked thing? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like maybe like like Brian Johnson. I'm glad some people like are are sort of pushing uh, the, this philosophy kind of to the extreme. But for everybody else, it's just not very pragmatic, right? And that was kind of my issue with um, the post. And it just feels very little kind of luxury and preachy of, hey, we, we should be doing these things. And then he cites a bunch of products that have been out for a while that no one really uses or cares about because they're kind of shitty and they're not really serving users needs and so like the, the wrong lesson to to be learning here which i think you know vitago's learning is hey like we should remind everybody to do the thing that that philosophically we're aligned to be doing versus hmm like why aren't people using these things what's wrong with them how can we make a version of them that you know fulfills our ideals but also is something that people want to use and so that that's kind of my, my issue with this it, it just it feels like i'm being you know, lecture to like eat my vegetables. I'm like, well, the vegetables taste like shit. So why don't you make something better that actually you know, want to eat? Um, and I don't always go into analogy, but uh, th- I guess that that's kind of- No, you make a great point. Cause I remember he mentioned Swarm, which was like their old IPFS competitor. And I was like, yeah. I have not heard about Swarm in like five years. Yes. But of it's, course, like Vitalik like, still holds Swarm, Swarm very deep in developed. his heart. That's what you say about projects that are just fucking dead. Is <laughs> they continue to, they're not dead. They continue to be developed. Um, so, right. or yeah, I say it's status right. as an extension of whisper as if that is a, you know, amazing success. And so, um, yeah, I, I think they're learning the wrong lessons from kind of what the market is telling them. That's a, that's a good point. Also a very, a very product minded point. So I appreciate you, uh, bringing the product perspective, Laura, what's your, what's your take? I, I mean, I know that you're not a real crypto person according to you, to <laughs> you guys, I'm not a self-assessment, self-assessment. <laughs> your, your own self-assessment. You are not a crypto person, but how would you, how would you, um, so I, I have a question. Um, this mention of swarm and IPFS, like this decentralized, you know, data or storage, is that the same thing as, um, kind of like the modular approach where like Celestia's providing this data layer data availability layer. Is that the same concept? Not quite. It, they're, they're related, but it's not quite like, like, Data availability really needs this notion of verifiability and I can challenge things. So think about like the the simplest way to think about it is like think about an optimistic roll-up. Well, you have the seven-day challenge period for a lot of optimistic groups, or it's less, but for some, but let, let's just say a seven-day, one-week challenge period. Well, I need that data that was say there's a function called that was called on invalid input well i need the invalid input to prove to the layer one that hey like this sequencer in the layer two fucked me over somehow right well you need that data to be somewhere everyone can agree on the layer one validators 
the layer two person sequencer who might get slashed the user. And so you need to keep that somewhere that you can slash. And so all the fights about data availability security are really fundamentally about like, should the layer one itself be keeping that or can it outsource that? And if it outsources it, it can lower yeah. its costs. But, but, but you need clear, this verifiability the idea, part. It's not just storing, right? Yes, yes, yes. So right. data availability is a little bit different from just storage, right? But right. Uh, it's more like volatile storage that has certain other guarantees that you care about. But I mean, it basically sounds like a better ver- it sounds like a better version of storage. It's not a better version of storage. It's, it's a different version of storage. It, it's, it's different. Yeah, yeah it's, the extra properties you add on top for sampling and for like clients to do stuff are expensive in other resources. So it's not just that there's resources of storage, but there's resources of communication. Like how much do right. the nodes have to communicate to prove this kind of invalid state or reconstruct state? And that overhead might not be worth it for all applications. So maybe your NFT dog shit picture like doesn't need, you know, like it, people don't care that much about it. And, you know, you're not going to do yes. But for my Uniswap swap, I do care about that. Yeah, yes. it's also like, so Celestia is not long-term storage, right? It's not like Arweave where Arweave is like, we will hold this data for hundreds of years because the blah, 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 blah. Uh, so permanent. it's not permanent. Yes, permanent. Quote, or the, their permaweave or whatever it's called. Um, per- per- permanent needs a perpetual Ponzi scheme. Never forget that. Somehow I think the second <laughs> law of thermodynamics is always missed by crypto people, but that's, that's you know, true. That's personal. true. Um, but no, right. so, but, but the, the core idea of modularity I think I think you are right in pointing that out. The whole idea of modularity is that instead of doing all of this stuff in a single blockchain, let's have another let's outsource this particular thing to another blockchain. And that is absolutely what IPFS or uh, a Swarm could be described as is like, oh okay, I want long-term storage. I don't know, I don't want to build that in my own chain. It's much easier for me to use another blockchain to do that. That is kind of modular that is kind of what the idea of modularity is. Okay. Yeah, I mean Um, My main point that I was just going to say is like, it feels like what he's doing is just kind of emphasizing. Yeah. I mean, these ideals around like decentralization and and whatever, but, but I think, you know, the person that he has in mind, um, you know, going back to your cypherpunk question are people where they cannot trust their government and they need another, you know, resource. They need something that they can rely on that you know, won't be taken away from them or won't be devalued in some way. And so I think, you know, what he's calling out is like, okay, like a bunch of people are getting rich off crypto. Great. But let's not forget that um, this could be, you know, something that would be really valuable to people who are more in like a life and death situation rather than just like, you know, um, yeah, making, making money. So um, to my mind, uh, it just feels like he's saying, okay, some of you are kind of taking this easy way to get rich quick, whereas like we could do things that are harder technically that would serve more people. And yeah, I think you're right. It's like a Pope speech and he's just trying to remind people of what some of the ideals are and, and like how crypto can do some good in the world. And, and look, we, as much as that might sound flippant or dismissive, crypto really needs a Pope, right? We don't have a lot of, uh, you know, virtuous paragons to, to you know wait some people would definitely vegetables. say there should never exist a pope i was just gonna say yeah, the bitcoiners we're gonna well, let's release this clip on social media and see what the bitcoiners have to say about that. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the bitcoiners are protestant yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's that's their big issue you know yeah exactly <laughs> exactly right? yeah. no there's a whole yeah. the only, only thing i want to say is like i i think an interesting fact is like if you look at someone like anatoly who's just completely focused on engineering as like 
you know, you know, I, I view kind of Anatoly and Vitalik in some ways as like the dialectic of of any of these types of decentralized systems, right? One is focused on is like, well, I guess it's ironic that Solana names their minimum currency unit Lamport, but one is sort of focused more on these theoretical distributed systems components, like Leslie Lamport would, you know, the researcher would have focused on, and these kind of philosophical things about what things you can and can't agree on, right? And that's that's sort of, in my mind, Ethereum came out of that school of thought. The Solana school of thought is like, well, centralized exchanges suck, but what's the closest thing we can build product-wise so that users use it, uh, but also we you know we only we care about all these like optimizations and and we really care about thinking about these like low level engineering details but we maybe are not as careful about these these other things and i've generally found that interestingly enough both of them are probably the two in in many ways sort of popes of these two different domiciles cuz like vitalik by all means it would not I, I suspect self anoint himself on the engineering side in fact he's been quite self deprecating in that way uh, in some pre- previous posts and certainly some research posts. And I think there's always this inevitable tension between the kind of philosophical components of these fields and the theoretical components versus the engineering and product components. And I think this is not something unique to crypto, interestingly enough, right? Like, I think the the open AI thing was exactly the same type of divide between the engineers and the philosophers. And I I think that's sort of the the type of thing that we see here. And I think there there's a good argument that you kind of need both types of people being able to describe these long-term visions. And 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 so the the dialectic is useful. It's not it's not it, 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 you know, I I think Hegel maybe gave it a bad name, but I, I think it is kind of useful in a, as as a rhetoric means well i i see i see your point but i think actually vitalik and anatoly are actually much closer um i think like the the sort of the the angle between them is not that big whereas the shadow vitalik right who is like the true inverse of vitalik i think it actually is justin sun i think like justin sun is kind of the he's kind of the inverse pope right where he like puts on the hat but he's like part of this you know uh this you know heretical Coptic uh, religion, and he's like, look, we're we're just kind of on the run. We're trying to make a bunch of money. We're we're super practical. We're doing business deals. Um, like we're we're gonna we're gonna sing the praises of decentralization while not really worrying too much about how decentralized we are and caring a lot more about DAUs and fees and end user metrics. And you know if the metrics aren't good, we just juice the numbers. And in a way, and I I, I kind of want to agree with Tom here on this point. In a way, like the the space needs some of that. As easy as it is to dunk on Justin Sun, like he is the opposite pope. He is the pope for just get shit done, just get stuff in the hands of users, get stuff that people actually want. And you can you can dunk on him all you want, and there's plenty of legitimate reasons to dunk on him. But that is that is in a way one of the other virtues of crypto that we have discovered post the cypherpunk era, which is that yes, people actually do want these things. This is not just a philosophical experiment. This is not just a way of you know, kind of crafting a world as we might want to see it. It's not just purely a utopian project. It is also a very deeply capitalist project of people want certain things. And if if you look at um, if you look at the discourse of Ethereum, you know, back in like 2015, 2016, 2017, there was a lot of talk about how do you make Ethereum nation state attacker resistant? 
Like if a government wanted to shut down Ethereum, how could you stop that, right? And you know, today, I think one of my biggest criticisms of Ethereum is that in a way, they're still kind of stuck in that mindset, despite the fact that we've now seen almost a decade of nation states responding to blockchains. And what you notice in the way the nation states respond to blockchains is that they do not do anything that anyone was talking about on you know, the Bitcoin forum in 2013. Right? They do not aggregate a bunch of hash rate and try to 51% attack things or do you know, feather forks or anything. They don't do any of that shit. Like what they do is they pass laws and they engage in politics and they ban things and they fight things and they, and they force people to pay taxes on certain things that are impossible to enforce. That's how governments actually, actually respond to crypto. And so if your philosophy and your thinking about how to construct these systems is not responsive to what you're actually viewing in the world or from your perceived adversaries, then I think you're, 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 that, that is kind of you know, uh, shaking your hand at the clouds and not really learning from how the world has changed over the last decade. Uh, and so it, it, you know, to be clear, I'm not saying that we should all be more like Justin Sun, but I think it's important that there is a Justin Sun. In, in, you know, he sort of orients us in an important direction uh, in a way that Vitalik also orients us in an important direction too. I just say, why can't you value all of these views simultaneously? They're not like so in, they're only not in concordance with each other. If you decide, you know, if you treat them as like pure religion versus, you know, sort of a, a particular moray on, on existence, right? And in some ways, that's sort of why I don't, I, I, I find sometimes the like really aggressive, like this is, this is why I think the quote tweets of Vitalik's, you know, when he posted this is the most informative thing you can see. Because it's telling you this idea of like everyone, you know, has their particular poll and they like take the projection of this thing onto their thing and they're giving you their little like view. And that's actually more almost more important than the piece itself, because that projection is more valuable because you see how each, you know, everyone interprets it. I, I, I just think there's no reason to kind of be like live at the the polemics of, of, of that. Uh, and, and, and in some ways that that's why it's a good piece, right? That's why you're talking about it for 30 minutes. Actually, just circling back to the Vitalik Anatoly comparison, honestly, I actually think they're, um, a lot more similar, um, yeah, than Tarun was saying, like, I probably agree with his C, but my spin on it would be that Anatoly is just like the 20 or 25 years older version of Vitalik than Vitalik, because they're both kind of like similarly humble they're both like obviously super geeky and, you know, techie type people. But um, I just feel like, you know, I, I mean, especially obviously I learned through my book, like Vitalik was so naive. And I mean, he was a kid when he started Ethereum. And it's just so clear when you interview Anatoly, like nothing ruffles him. Like, do you remember that first or I don't know if it was the first, but the one really big outage that <clears throat> was like 19 hours or something. Do you know what he said about it? He was like, oh, well, we just had a 19-hour block time. <laughs> like, he, like, people were calling it an outage, and he was like, that was just an extra long block time. And I was like, okay, like, that's quite the spin. But I just felt like because he's, you know, in his 40s or whatever he is, like, he has this sort of, like, I've seen it all before, nothing is going to bother me. Like, like, the, you know, the worst shit could go down, and, like, people would be all freaking out and, you know, pulling out their hair. And like Anatoly is just going to be cool as a cucumber, it sort of feels like. And it feels like Vitalik will probably age into that. And it's almost like you can already see it in his dad. The way his dad, like, 
he has such a sense of humor about everything. He's like tweeting these like philosophical jokes and, you know, I don't know. It's just, I, I personally don't think they're that different. I just think that Anatoly has a particular way of handling things simply because he's older and has experienced more. So by the way, Vitalik is about to turn 30. Uh, I think within a month, he's going to be 30 years old. January 31st. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he's he's entering that stage of, I mean, I don't know if, if it's exactly, it's obviously not his 40s, but um, I think he's entering the kind of elder statesman phase of his career. But, and and I, I do agree with Tarun in the sense that I think Vitalik is going to be, he, he's going to be the cypherpunk guy, right? I don't think he's going to become more pragmatic in the way that Anatoly is of like, hey guys, let's just like build a thing and build the NASDAQ on chain and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, let's just do what we have to do in order to to make those trade-offs. Yeah, that reminds me. Anatoly, um, you're right. He's more corporate than Vitalik, but anyway. Yes, right. I mean, he works at Qualcomm, right? Like he's he's had real jobs. You know, Vitalik has never had Vitalik a real job. Vitalik has never had a real so, job. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is great, right? Like that's part of what makes Ethereum Ethereum is that you know Vitalik is so much at the heart of the culture of how Ethereum has become what it is. But you know, look, I, I think I think the answer, as Tarun was saying, is that you do need both because you need those voices. Um, but the reality is that like, yeah, people listen to the Pope and they're like, oh, you know, the Pope said, you know, don't, um, you know, don't steal and don't have uh, ill will or envy in your heart. But, but people kind of take it in stride. They're kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, yes, but I will also go look at shopping catalogs and like, you know, still follow celebrities. And so I think, I think most people do end up somewhere in the middle. Most people do end up hearing these messages and internalizing them and, and kind of calibrating them in their own way. Uh, and, and I think that is part of the work of Vitalik. And I think in a way, the way you know that it's working is precisely maybe what Tarun said, which is that everyone quote tweets it and has their own little spin on it to say, ah, yes, here's why I'm virtuous, just the way that Vitalik was saying. Maybe that's maybe, maybe that is the positive result of sending this kind of message, is that people are reminded of their own idea of virtue, even if it's not necessarily Vitalik's form of virtue. Yeah, I, I will say the one funny part about those quote tweets is there's particular individuals who i find funny where they're like constantly tweeting about people overly virtue signaling on twitter and then they quote tweet and write their own opinion and i'm like well what do you think you're doing but you know i you know whatever that's their that's their own lack of self-awareness i guess name names yeah yeah yeah, come on you gotta you can't you can't be calling out people there's a lot of quotes you can go read them yourself okay okay all right all right all right, well, um, let's move on real quick to Tarun's favorite topic, which is the Bitcoin ETF. Uh, I can see uh, Tarun is just celebrating internally as we, uh, as we shift gears. Um, so ETF seems to be imminent. There's a lot of excitement right now. Bitcoin just hit 45K. Yeah, Tarun, go ahead. Did we talk about the redemption piece, the fact that that changed last minute and like it's cash redemption now versus in kind? Because I actually we were, think we that's going the to thing that's that. kind, of, kind of fucked up. Personally, yes. So basically, uh, what we've seen from some of the disclosures uh, or some uh, some of the forms, whatever there are, uh, is that all of the ETFs are going to be cash redeemed, not in kind redeemed. So this is pretty weird. Most ETFs are redeemed in kind. So when you uh, redeem or mint uh, an ETF, so for example, if you have the you know SPY ETF, SPY ETF, which is uh, tracks the S and P five hundred, contains all the companies in the S and P five hundred in the ETF. The ETF is like a basket of all these company shares. In SPY, when you redeem the ETF or you mint a new ETF, 
you basically put a bunch of shares in the basket to create a new ETF, a new share of the ETF, or when you redeem from the ETF, you take all the shares out. And so you don't actually go sell the underlying things on the market. Obviously, that would be annoying and it would cause some slippage. Well, in the Bitcoin ETF, apparently uh, the SEC is not comfortable or is not quite given the rules to the authorized participants of the ETF to, to, to show them how could they compliantly, as broker-dealers, manage Bitcoin. Uh, apparently, they've not been given any guidance on how to do this. And so as a result, all the ETFs are going to be cash settled. So when you mint new shares of the Bitcoin ETF, you send them cash. And the Bitcoin ETF sponsor will themselves buy the Bitcoin with the cash on a spot exchange. And when you redeem the ETF, instead of, okay, the, the authorized participant gets a Bitcoin, instead, the, the, the issuer will sell the Bitcoin for cash and give the authorized participant the cash. Now, this is less efficient. Now, at the end of the day, I don't know how much it matters because, it, you know, obviously, the authorized participants aren't just going to sit around holding the Bitcoin. They are going to hedge it or sell it. But it does make the ETF less efficient. Um, and so this was something that a lot of people got annoyed by. Um, that said, the ETF, it's very clear the ETFs are coming very soon. Uh, Bitcoin has rallied to 45K. We've seen now some of the ETFs get seeded with capital. It looks like BlackRock is going to have 10 million in there. Bitwise is going to have 200 million. Wisdom Tree, 2.5 million. And there's, there's just been, uh, uh, right now, I think Polymarket is pricing the uh, likelihood of approval in the next two weeks at 88%. So it seems like overwhelmingly, it's it's pretty much at this point to be a sure thing that the ETF is, is likely going to be uh, approved or the ETFs, plural, are going to be approved very, very soon. So um, any comments on the ETF? Uh, Tarun, yeah. I, know you have a, I know you have a lot of thoughts. Well, I'll, I'll say something about the in-kind versus cash creation, which is, I don't know if you guys picked up on this. We uh, I think it was James Seifert on my show who talked about this. But basically, um, so this actually affects Grayscale the most um, to do it in cash. I don't know if you guys, did, did you catch wind of this? So, okay, so I'll just explain it. So what happens is that anybody who's in GPTC, of course, what, you know, when they, you know, just as anybody, when they were to sell an investment, they would, um, you know, pay taxes on that, right? But the thing is that um, with GPTC, if you already currently own it, you are going to, um, be, once they convert into an ETF, because of this cash creation redemption, all the holders of GBTC will have a tax event this year, even if they hadn't been intending to sell their shares. Do you understand? So mm -hmm. like if the in-kind had been allowed, then if they had stayed in GBTC, they wouldn't have necessarily had that tax event this year, but now everybody will. And what I was saying to James is my thought is that this is, so it's not only bad for Grayscale just because this happens to all the holders of GBTC, but it's also bad for them in the sense that if any GBTC holders were thinking of switching to a different ETF issuer, then this gives them like more of an impetus to actually just do it since they're going to have to have the taxable event anyway. Whereas like if that hadn't happened, then they might've been like, well, I'll just stay in it a little longer until it makes sense for me to, you know, have this kind of taxable event. But it does feel to me like, you know, since there are some GBTC holders who probably aren't happy with Grayscale, they're probably, you know, not happy that they weren't able to redeem before, like whatever, like they will potentially see more outflows than they would have. That's just my theory. But um, yeah, that no matter what, I think you're right. It's like a worse experience for every single participant. It's like all the back end people, plus the, you know, in my opinion, this probably raises fees. 
because there's just like a little bit of extra. I mean, it's not a huge amount. James Seifert was saying it's like just, you know, I don't know, a really small amount of basis points, like one or two or whatever. But regardless, it does feel like it's just a worse choice for everyone involved. Um, so anyway, but yeah, it's going to affect Grayskull the most. Yeah, that makes that seems really bad for Grayskull, yeah, actually. Yeah, I think the thing I just don't like about it is it's um, it's kind of like not a clean structure. And there's an argument that the authorized participants it favors the most are actually market makers in the designated market, which is Coinbase, because all of those market makers now know the flow they have to cross against. And so it just like kind of makes it like, okay, the ETF creation redemption are really concentrates into Coinbase market makers and like no one else. It feels a little bit like a, f- a free money gift to them, which that to me is the more, you know, like I know the SEC like is run by a bunch of clowns most of the time in, in the last few years, but like this feels like, absolutely stupid like if your fucking mission is consumer protection and you're just giving market makers free basis points like this like you are brainless like i don't know what kind of fucking idiot comes up with that structure well wait one question because i thought that actually it also benefited the benefited the big banks to have cash because if you recall like originally all the applications said they were going to do both cash and in kind and i thought the reason for that was because um the cash option allows the banks to participate, whereas like otherwise they wouldn't, you know, if it, if it were only inclined, then I, I, you know, I don't think they would have been able to because they they can't hold digital assets. But, you know, all of the applicants, I think, wanted to do both. But now it's like only the cash. Um, so then it isn't that beneficial to the big banks or or no? Am I misunderstanding that or? Maybe. I, I mean, that seems like marginal. But yeah, I, I agree. Oh. You're right. It probably does. It's yeah, probably, the crazy I, I custody I, rule is what prevents banks from being able to touch the stuff in the first place, though, which is also because of the SEC. Yeah. Oh, no, no. That was the OCC, right? OCC. Yeah, that was the OCC. Sorry. Th- this yeah, is yeah, just yeah. more this idea that like, if I'm a market maker in Coinbase, right? Say, say I, I'm a big market making firm. And a lot of those are the US market making firms because like, basically very hard to market make on Coinbase as a foreign entity for for all the regulatory reasons. So there's good reason for that. But there's not that many of them who are doing it. And those market makers now know that they're getting this free flow on creation redemption like every time there's new cash coming into ETF. And there's no one else who can actually fulfill the other side because there just has to be, you know, the ETF rules are like, well, the nav of the the net asset value of the ETF has to equal what it index is tracking right and i just feel like this structure exists to like cause consumer harm strictly because who's bearing that those basis points of loss it's like the etf holders so it's like actually idiotic if your mission is really like oh we're like trying to help consumers you're literally just causing them extra slippage like uh, it's it's just like it's one of these things where it's like i don't understand who who like why like you're adding this because you're just like okay yes we're afraid the authorized participants don't kyc First of all, your authorized participants and your market makers overlap so much. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> you could easily yeah, right just now, Jane add, Street add, and JP Morgan are the named authorized participants for the uh, it, shares. It, it, it's, kind, it's kind of ridiculous. You're favoring those people in such a, in such a way that's like, you know, I, I, I think that Arthur Hayes post maybe about like the ETF is kind of like going to maybe destroy Bitcoin. I mean, that's sort of some of the hyper- hyperbole I would say in there. 
there, there's some truth to this idea that like SAC is just basically picking favorites. And like, you know, if, if I were an aggrieved person with infinite capital, I would be suing them because like this is this is like a very dumb decision, like and goes against their mandate. Look, I, I in I don't often come to the defense of the SEC, but in defense of the SEC, you know, they were more or less cornered by the courts to have to approve the Bitcoin ETFs. So I can imagine that the, the amount of, you know, from my understanding of the rules around Bitcoin custody um, for broker dealers, it's, it's actually the broker dealers themselves who are like, look, we don't want to touch Bitcoin because we don't actually know what the rules are. And we, and they're, you know, if you're talking about JP Morgan, Jane street, maybe, you know, whatever, we'll play more fast and loose JP Morgan as an authorized participant, they're like, look, we will absolutely not do anything that there are not very clear rules around. And so the SEC just may not have had time, right? Literally, there was an impending government shutdown in November uh, that obviously was averted. Then they had to ram all this stuff through end of year when you know they're like, closing out their, their uh, end of year books. And so I can just imagine there wasn't enough time for them to actually just write out clear rules and get you know industry input and blah, 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 of like how broker-dealers deal with Bitcoin. So I can imagine that that will change once there's more time and you know things just kind of settle down a bit. But clearly, there was a frenzy uh, at the end of the year of like, you know, the, the courts pushing back and, and them having all these impending deadlines that they had to get these things ready for approval in, on, in pretty short notice. That would be my yeah. first cut assumption. Except well, I, for I, the fact yeah. that they should have approved the ETFs long before this. So it's like. Yes, yes. Granted, granted, <laughs> granted. But insofar in as they were like, look, we hate ETFs and we don't want them to exist. Once you get to that point that, OK, the courts are forcing their hand. Uh, I don't. I don't know how they could have come up with. But but a just because for, the court forces your hand doesn't mean you do something that's like against your mandate. You know, like I I feel like this is like just purposeful, like you know, sniping and like it 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 just feels like it feels like Gary Gensler's YouTube videos. They're just like purposely exist to like <laughs> twist a nail or like twist a little screw, not because there's any good reason to do that, not because there's an ethical or moral reason. Because clearly he has. Big, close to zero you, you think it's way. a fuck you to consumers and that he yeah. is like yo it, it, let's get more kind of, money to it's, it, it's a fuck it, it, it's kind of a fuck you to crypto in some ways yeah I, well I, in, I, broadly speaking so i agree that it's maybe well okay so if it's intended to be a fuck you it it would be intended to be more of a fuck you to crypto um but you know in terms of what i mentioned earlier like this screws grayscale over the most and because they were the ones that sued the SEC to get this to happen, um, there were people Wait, on my the show. The thing is to fuck you to grayscale. No, well, I don't. But there were people on my show. I, I, it might have been James Seifert again because um, he's been on you know multiple times, obviously, because of the ETF thing. But I think he said like, oh, you know, there might be. Some, and this was like well before this whole cash and in-kind thing came up. But I remember at the time he said that he was wondering if there would be something that would happen that would kind of screw grayscale over for political reasons, he said, because of the lawsuit. And this uh, kind of fits the bill. Um, again, this is highly speculative, but, you know, it's just like everybody's saying. And, and it's and it's like um, what everybody said even before when the SEC was not approving the ETFs and their logic was that, um, you know, there could be potential market manipulation and then everybody was like, okay, but the derivatives, they're based on, you know, the price of the derivatives is based on the price of the spot. So it doesn't make logical sense. And again, this goes against the logical sense. Like in kind just is a lot more efficient for everybody involved. It's a better way to do it. And that's typically how commodities ETFs um, 
operate. You know, I don't know if there's literally any of them that um, are done in cash. And then second, you know, just handily enough, the one that's, you know, that's going to be hurt the most is Grayscale. So I hate to put a conspiracy theory out there, but um, I just want to. No, no. I mean, look, it it does make sense when you put it. Yeah. What is the show for if not for unfounded (laughs) conspiracy theories against the government? Well, it's not even a conspiracy theory. It's just like putting some bits and pieces together. I I, I, I actually think that if I remember correctly, and and so it's been a while since I was actually trading, but I remember there are ETFs that are like commodity ETFs that do do cash, but it's more because there's no inventory, right? It's like, oh, like, Uh. haha, it's like impossible to get uranium tomorrow. (laughs) like enough right so like okay fine you can you can do this yeah if any if there's any commodity that's easy to get immediately electronically it's bitcoin exactly so it's like i i don't think some of the the known excuses make sense yeah yeah okay well uh by this time next week very very likely the bitcoin etf is going to be approved uh and we're going to be in this this new post etf world which i know tarun is very eagerly awaiting so to, to close out the show, predictions for what happens with ETF. Do you think it's going to be like, okay, rally time? Or is there going to be a sell-off? People will be like, oh, well, there's an ETF now. Now what? What, what, what are your views on what's likely to happen? Uh, Tarun, why don't you go first? Because I know you're the most excited about this. I think the interesting question to me is like how much of this like traditional equity in, uh, interest moves from like Coinbase, miners, microstrategy into Bitcoin ETF. Because there are a lot of people who are like sort of regulatorily captured, make these like kind of indirect bets. Probably MicroStrategy, the biggest one. Right. Well, they just announced while we were doing the show this like huge tender offer to sell a bunch of shares. So I, I don't know how closely related to the Bitcoin ETF that is, but huh. the timing is a little bit sus. But yeah, I, I, I think the, the rotation will be interesting. I think the other thing I'm kind of curious about is, and this is more a side speculation type of thing of like, how much the options market on the ETF evolves and like whether, you know, cri- crypto options have always been this like holy grail that never really has reached its potential. And so given that people love trading options in, in equities, especially right now, you know, the zero day to expiry options or like, which didn't exist, you know, basically didn't exist a few years ago now have like over 50% of volume. I kind of think that, if there's ever a time for crypto options to like be in the spotlight, it'll come from this. So like that to me is my sort of side thing I'm looking at. And and maybe okay, you know, so I don't no, have a no strong true price predictions. Price predictions. That's what the people want. Uh I think we are going to have alt season. You think we're gonna have alt season? Okay. Yes. Which means it, what he means by that is the Bitcoin <laughs> price is going to go very high and it's going to leak out to alts. You know, you can you can make your own assessment. <laughs> you can... <laughs> well, it's All clearly right. what that means. No, that's yes, the Oracle of Delphi has spoken. Uh, Laura, I know that you are big. You're the biggest DGen on the show. <laughs> as the as the as the biggest crypto person, what what's your take? Where do you predict things are going? Um well, probably just on the news of the approval, there might be like a bit of taking of profits. But um, yeah, I don't know if you guys listened to this interview that I did with Rick Edelman, but he's kind of this like guru to financial advisors. And his organization has done surveys on, you know, what percentage of financial 
advisors own Bitcoin, what, you know, what percentage of them would like to allocate uh, some of their clients' portfolios to Bitcoin. And it was something like um, some huge percentage of them. It was, so it was, sorry, I don't remember. It was either 47% of them or 77%. And the numbers are swapped here, but one or the other um, of those percentages is what uh, the, uh, is the percentage of advisors who own Bitcoin themselves. And then the other one, whether it's 77, I think it's 77 um, percent are waiting on ETFs to allocate for their own clients. And, you know, financial advisors in the U.S., they control, um, I forget, it's like trillions of um, in assets. So um, in that regard, like it feels like, you know, probably some of them, they're not going to allocate right away, but. Within the first year, we're gonna, I would expect like a huge amount of inflows. And there have been a few people on my show. I literally think, if I remember correctly, I think two different people came up with like roughly 150 billion as their kind of like estimate of the first year of inflows. Um, so, you know, um, hopefully I didn't get that fact wrong. <laughs> now I'm a little I, worried. There's no way it's 150 billion. That That is. Insane. Okay, That's sorry. Insane yeah, maybe that was money. three to five years. So maybe it was like fifty billion for the first year. Two of them. One was Alex Thorne, and the other, if I remember correctly, was Matt Hogan. Um, yeah, you're right. I think it was fifty billion for the first year, and then it was three to five years where they were seeing one hundred and fifty billion. So you know, I'm not sure exactly, obviously, how that will translate into price. Um, but obviously, it's a lot of money coming in. So you know, there's only twenty one million coins. So you know, or and even less than that that are circulating. Yeah. Wait, Tom, actually, I have, I have a slight, I have a question for you. Do you think that that means ordinals will be less popular? We can answer this after, but because fees will go up so much. Wait, I'm sorry. Fees, fees from the Bitcoin. Like, ETF like, let, yeah. Let's suppose there was 50 billion injected in the first six months and price doubled. Wait, but no, 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 because these fees are not coming on chain. We just, we just established yeah. everything's cash settled, right? So there's no on chain. No, 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 no. I, I know, I know. But Bitcoin price going up. The NFTs are like reflexive to a certain point, but at some point, sure. the the fees price people out, right? And like the question is like, will the ETF actually be bad for ordinals or not? And like the on chain, I don't, I don't understand how you're. It seems pretty orthogonal be, to me. Yeah, I don't get. The what connection. the ETF is? Let's say the ETF causes the inflows. The inflows cause the price to go up by two x, three x, right? At some multiple of price. The fees start pricing out the current ordinal user. Some of the current ordinal, right? There's obviously you're, some ordinal. Well, you're assuming like, but like, it might cause other people to drop out of the fee market too, right? Like, um, you know, I don't know on the totem pole, like for sure, for what sure. Is, like, the, I, the, that's where least valuable. That's where the speculation comes in. Yeah, is like is like, d- does the ETF crowd out these kind of native usages because it makes the price too high? I think as the price increases, it just means that ordinals will become more like Ethereum NFTs. And yeah, it becomes like a, a high end market rather than a kind of low yeah. end random. Which, which is which is interesting, market. right? Because it, it kind of started the opposite way for ordinals. Right. Yeah. Sorry, not to front run your prediction, Tom. I, I just mean, it might it might more... tamp down, especially BRC twenty activity. Like I could see the the NFTs maybe um, keeping pace, but the BRC the meme coins like the activity there slowing down. I don't know. I feel like. Uh... If, if anything, it's always just like when things get crazy and blockchain gets crowded, if anything, people, that's like when prices go more crazy, when people are willing to pay like $100 to do a swap. Um, and so, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess we'll see, but um, it feels to me like 
these just more sort of fuel to the fire. Um, these, these generally feel kind of like sell the news kinds of moments to me, but in, in this case, it does feel very material on that. There isn't really a good sort of, you know, competitor to like a Bitcoin ETF in terms of fitting that need or demand in people's portfolio, like GPTC, um, you know, MicroStrategy, Coinbase, these are all kind of like flawed in different ways. And so um, it, it does feel like a pretty material event, but at the same time, almost kind of like anticlimactic. I feel like the entire time I've been in this industry, people have been talking about the ETF and when the ETF is going to get approved. And now it's it's coming up soon and I don't really care. Um, it's, you know, it's it's been so long and it's like, you know, kind of a boomer instrument for boomers, but I'm happy for them. So um, I'm having a drink on them tonight. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah, my my only prediction is I think immediately after the Bitcoin ETF, I think ETH, uh, ETH Bitcoin is going to rally. Uh, because I think immediately the next narrative in line is Ether ETF. And so I think people will very quickly get bored of Bitcoin or maybe, you know, Bitcoin might do fine or it might, it might, um, dump a bit after the ETF is approved on, uh, as Tom was mentioning, it's kind of like, okay, now what, you know, ETF is here. Now we just wait. And, uh, crypto markets are very impatient. If I've learned anything about them, they don't, they don't like to wait. Uh, and so I think immediately, um, there will be, uh, interest in rotation and say, okay, what's the next big story that we can get excited about? That'd be my guess, but you know we're not traders for a reason because uh, we're <laughs> we're not good at it. So uh, I would assume that I'm probably totally wrong on all these things. What do you think the timeline to the Ether ETF is? If you were to like guess, say say from the day of Bitcoin. Oh, I actually I know the answer. It's something like May. Again, uh, it was either oh, okay. James or maybe Eric Mulchun is one of them on my show who told me because it, it's all based on like the. You know, there's like a starting clock that begins when when an application is filed. There's like different deadlines, but yeah, they one of them said it was May something. Yeah, I'd heard by summer, but I don't really I don't really know. I haven't followed any of the details, but I'm sure we will all be talking a lot about it on the show for <laughs> the rest of this spring. Yeah, so. but Ether ETFs could be quite interesting because, um, you know, due to staking, you can probably do uh, things a little bit more creative in terms. Oh, of there's like no way they'll be staked. No, no, no. There's no way they will they'll be staked. Yeah, or maybe down the line, like you you give um because so basically for the Bitcoin ETFs, they're gonna be competing on price. But for Ether ETFs, they could compete in other ways. So uh true. Yes, yes, yes. So if if BlackRock launches an ETF, there's definitely not gonna be staking. But if there there may be other, you know, uh, uh Bitwise or something might be like, cool, there's a staked ETH ETF or an STETH ETF, uh, which is Actually, that might be STETH might be too dicey, but you know, I don't know. Given given the way the SEC has positioned themselves around staking, it might be not. Doable. Yeah, I I kind of feel like that's a post Gensler type of thing. I think it's going to be like mm -hmm. the most vanilla thing first. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but for but sure. this time next year uh, we might be in the post Gensler era because obviously it's an election year. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Sure. Anyway, all right. Um, that wraps for this week. Laura, thanks for coming on and, and uh, sharing your wisdom and energy with us. Thanks for having me. Hopefully by this time next week, we're going to have a Bitcoin ETF. So uh, if we if you guys don't hear from us by then, happy Bitcoin ETF, if it in fact does come, I guess. 12% well, I think there's like a something. delay between approval and listing. So yeah, uh, okay, we should well, have but, the but the party yeah. the party is going to be on hopefully by this time next yeah. week. So until then, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about. Um, but thank you, everybody. And we'll be back next week. Bye, everyone.